two briefly. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for the reminder of this, Lord. Uh, the church has always been uh, a, a group that has worshipped you because of the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, and yet, Lord, we've been impacted by a very pagan world. And so tonight, Lord, we want to settle our hearts and minds down and look at the difficulties of what took place, but yet how you arranged everything that you would bring literally salvation into this world through Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, we pray that you would help us uh, listen well, hear well, Lord, and then certainly live well for you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. John, the apostle, wrote this. He said, In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, standing in quality with God. And the Word was God. No doubt who the Word is. He is Jesus Christ. Chapter 1, verse 14 says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld. I mean, grasp and seen the beauty of his glory, John would tell us, full of grace and truth. But verse 2 goes on and says, he was in the beginning. He's always existed. He's the eternal God. All things came into being through him. Now listen to this. Apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. The creator is now in the cradle. That's what one of the great truths that we're worshiping tonight as well. Now listen to this. In him was life. It's very important. There is no life, eternal life, outside of Jesus Christ. Eternal life meaning eternal life with God in heaven. There will be eternal death, but there is no eternal life. And that life was the light of men. It was the only hope. Darkness was in man. We needed the light of the Lord Jesus Christ. The light shines into the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. And so they attempted to murder the light. But that was God's plan, to send his son to die for us. As we think about this scene, we come and bring our minds back to 2,000 years ago in the creator, as we've just read here, of the universe, the eternal God steps out of heaven, adds to his perfected deity, human flesh, so he can die. Church has heard me say this many times. He had to be man. He had to add flesh to his deity so he could die because you cannot kill God. Somebody has to die in our place. And so this is the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ. And our Savior did not come into a kingdom. He did not come into a palace. He came into a very extremely poor situation. When we look at the scene of his birth, we realize it would be just Joseph and Mary only in that stable or in that lean-to or that cave or whatever it may have been. We'll look at that more on Sunday morning. If it wasn't for God sending his angels to announce his birth to lowly shepherds who came to worship the Lord. The scene is desolate in a way. Um, it's, it's in the Middle Eastern night when you come to this passage of the birth of Christ this is a, a night that doubtlessly may have been cool. Uh, they, they're, they're alone. But there is not anything common about this child. <laughs> this child is the king of kings. But he's born into a world of darkness. And Luke chapter 2 begins to help us understand how dark the world was and really how dark it still is without Christ. But this child's birth goes on to mark the pinnacle of time, doesn't it? 
In fact, our calendar, our world eternal calendar, our history and everything is marked by him, B.C., before Christ. And of course, A.D., which is the Latin Anno Domini, meaning the year of our Lord. He's the pinnacle of, of history, isn't he? There, there's history before Christ's birth, and then there's history after it. Everything is marked by this coming Lord Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world. When we look at Luke chapter 2, and you hear it read, many of you, tom- uh, not tomorrow, Sunday, uh, as you gather and open presents and stuff, I imagine many of you will read this passage. We're going to study it Sunday morning as well, the birth and, and the shepherds and all that comes with it Sunday morning here. And it is probably one of the most familiar passages to people. Because Christmas is worldwide, it's, there's nativity scenes in most places, some places, maybe getting fewer. People know this message. But how did Christmas get to where it is from such an obscure birth? Christmas now is a multi-bazillion dollar holiday. It's, it is drowned in materialism. How did it get there? How did, how did this incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ, this incredible humbling of our Lord, get to such a materialistic Christmas in this world? Where, as we said in the scriptures, there's actually no passage in the Bible that tells you that you are to s- celebrate Christmas. Do you know that? Now, look, don't, don't think I'm going down that road. We love Christmas. If you come to our house, we have a Christmas tree up, and we have stockings and grandkids' names on them and all that stuff. We enjoy those things. But there is no passage in the scriptures that tells you to do what we do at Christmas time. The Bible does not speak of those things. And certainly the worship of Christ would take in the incarnation. So the Bible teaches us to worship him. And that would take in his glorious incarnation. And without his incarnation, we don't have a savior who is both God and human, who can live a perfect life and die a perfect death. And so it is part of the celebration of the church. But there is no passage that says, put up a tree put presents around it, kiss under mistletoe, and all that other stuff. So how does that come into play here? Well, the early church really didn't celebrate Christmas. If you study your church history, there's none of this for the first four centuries of the church. And yet, as we study the scriptures, we begin to realize that the incarnation of Christ is explained in the gospel as just part of the narrative. You see it in Matthew, you see it in Luke, John touches on it as we've looked here, that the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory, touches on it. Mark does not mention it, and yet the narrative goes on to talk about the life of Jesus and then his death, burial, and resurrection. And so in the Gospels, it's part of the story, and certainly the part of it is the worship of Christ, and it is extremely important to our doctrine practice in our worship. Now, the church was birthed in persecution. We see that right away. Peter is preaching within the first few chapters. He's already imprisoned. He's already brought in front of those who killed Christ. There we see persecution hit the early church very uh, hard and very early. In fact, for the first three centuries, I mean the first 300 years, the church is under persecution. Sinful mankind was trying to crush the way. They were trying to crush the bride. They were trying to stop the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, I want to remind you that it is important to exalt Christ, but that wasn't, we didn't see Christmas the way we do it here. 
That wasn't around in the early church. They were trying to survive. Peter says, he writes a letter in 1 Peter to the churches that are scattered. And he lists a whole uh, geographical area where they're pushed into because they were dying for their faith. I don't think they were putting up Christmas trees and singing jingle bells. But how did we get to this point, this glorious teaching of the incarnation that we've sang about and, and heard how it's gotten to homes where dads lead homes? How did we get there? The fourth century, Constantine came in. Constantine was a real blessing to the church, mainly because his mom, we believe his mom, came to faith. Constantine put a stop pretty much to the persecution of the early church in the fourth century. And in that, in the influence of his mom, he began to want to know more about the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he sent a message to the, to the bishop of Rome and said, when was Jesus born? You can read on this. There's lots of history on these things. And so this bishop of the church of Rome began to study, but his study was impacted by the paganism that was at the time. When we go back and look at that time, the world was extremely pagan, just like it was, and there was so much materialism, there was so much worship of pagan gods. This pope in Rome decided to pick a date, and he picked a date at the highlight of the pagan world's worship. Now, I know, I, if you want to email, just email one of the other pastors. Um, <laughs> because everybody gets wild about this. We don't know the date of the birth of Christ. It is very possible it was in December. It's very possible those sheep on the, on the hills could have been um, temple sheep that were there for, for um, raising for the Passover and so forth coming up in the next few months. Um, it could have been, but we just don't know when the birth of Christ was. Now, I believe in Luke's day when he wrote the gospel, they probably knew but over through time in the, in the scattering of the church and the persecution was going, that date was lost. And so we don't really know when it was done. But here comes this bishop of Rome. He has no idea of the birth of Christ. He comes and sees this as an opportunity to push back some of this growing paganism. And so he begins to pick a date. And he picks December 25th. He picks that date for many, many reasons. And he sends it back to Constantine because this was the time when they celebrated, the pagan religions of the world celebrated their gods in the darkest time of winter. Now, pagan festivals had been going on for years. And in order to provoke their gods, they would have festivals and they would have uh, drinking and all kinds of uh, sexual immorality would go on this. And what they would do is try to perform in front of their gods to get them out of darkness that the light would return. We were just in Egypt not too long ago, and one of the things we saw over and over in the tombs of the pharaohs and kings was Ra, the god of sun. He would have snakes out in front of him, and it would be shown on the walls, and those snakes would go forward before them because every day there was 12 hours of darkness and 12 hours of light, and during that time of darkness, they would plead for the gods to get them through that. They would send the snakes ahead of them to take off care of any demons that were there because they wanted to get back to the light because that was Ra. Well, that was true in all the pagans' uh, religions as well. They did not like the darkness, though they lived in darkness. 
And so their festivals were centered around this. And many festivals were geared towards the gods of agriculture. They wanted the sun to come and the rain to come on their crops to start growing again. And during these dark and cold months, they would take evergreen branches and they would nail them to their to their shelters or their homes. They would even tie candles on them. They would hang ornaments, sometimes little idols, on those branches and nail them to their dwelling places. During the season, the pagan worship would give little idols to one another as gifts. They would actually even wrap them and give them to another person to share their idol with someone else. Others offered gifts and gathered mistletoe. It was said in some of the religions that they would boost a priest up, up into an oak tree or a tree that grew mistletoe so that he would cut with a golden scepter off that mistletoe that would fall and they would catch it in a sheet, not to touch it, to lay it on top of the sacrifice of the animal that they were given to their God that day. You go, Scott, where are you going with these are all our traditions? You can see where we're going, right? There's a mixture of materialism now, and this pope is trying to push back, excuse me, this bishop is trying to push back. As we study this a little more and look a little deeper and read a little dip, deeper into our early church history, you also find sacrifices with that mistletoe. And one of the things I thought was very funny and kind of particular is they were told in these pagan worships to take mistletoe, to find an enemy, put it over that enemy, and what? Kiss them. This is where this stuff comes from. So clearly, the Bishop of Rome really failed. He was, he was trying to, to bring, quote, religion into a pagan world. And what happened is the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ got mixed with a lot of materialism and a lot of pagan. And so it didn't take long for the church to associate the incarnation with worldly ritual. We get a little farther into church history and we find the manger scene getting popularized. St. Francis was uh, one of the saints of the Roman Catholic Church. He was known for his ministry to the poor and his love of nature and animals. He highlighted the manger scene. He glorified the animals and nature that was there to worship God. It affected even some of our songs that we sing. He was known for this. Martin Luther comes along a little later, and he actually drags a tree into his house, maybe one of the first to do this. He decorates it with candles to teach his children what it looked like from the stable, the starry night that would have been above the manger scene. There was a saint called St. Nicholas. He came along. He was known for a long white beard and his love for those who suffered. He did a lot of great things. He was a bishop in Asian Minor. Um, when you study him, he, he was a very gracious and merciful man in many ways. He would often been known to throw coins down chimneys, and some of those coins fell into stockings that were drawing. You know, Scott, you're killing me with all this stuff. I'm just giving you history here. You can see where this stuff started to work its way into our belief system. And look, I don't think it's wrong to hang these things. I just want you to know where it comes from and why it was so dark at the time of Christ. St. Nicholas also did something that was very interesting. He would leave two things on the porch. As he examined families and who were parenting or not parenting, he would either leave a gift on the porch or he would leave a switch on the porch. <laughs> Some parents are going, that might not be a bad idea. We should maybe bring that one back. 
Kids are going, when's this got to be done? I don't want to hear this anymore. Legend tells us that there was a choir director in Germany that came along and he wanted to keep the kids still during the Christmas pageant when they weren't singing. And so he took sticks, dipped them in candy, and gave them to them. Why? The other pageant was going on to keep them quiet. And there comes the what? The candy cane. Sir Henry Cole was believed to start the Christmas card uh, business. I, I tried to see he was, his last name was Hallmark maybe, but <laughs> he owned an art shop. And he began to paint scenes of people being merry and drinking and, and having a grand time around the holiday with little pictures of a manger scene in the background. Many of these early scenes depict a celebration that wasn't truly connected to the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. There are many other examples, but time just limits us. But needless to say, the bishop of Rome really failed. (laughs) He had good intentions, I think, but he tried to mix a biblical instruction and tried to draw away people out of paganism. But if the light of the Lord Jesus Christ has not grabbed the pagan's heart as it does ours... They will try to mix religion and materialism, and it never works. And thus, we have Christmas done the way it's done around the world today. But I want you to look at Luke chapter 2, if you have your Bibles, or just listen along. It's a very familiar passage. When we come to this night, or the nights before the birth of Christ, you can see the darkness that's in the world. We sang that song, O come, O come, Emmanuel, release us captives. Now, certainly Israel was under the captivity of Rome. That all began with the Assyrian captivity of the northern tribes, led to Babylon taking over Assyrian, which eventually came down and took the northern tribes. And then you have the Mede-Persians who took the Babylonians. Then you have the Greeks who took the the Mede-Persians. And then you have the Romans who took the Greeks. And now we come to the life coming up to Christ's birth. Rome is under strong rule here. And here we begin to see where Christ is born. He's born into a time of great captivity. Israel hated Rome. They were captive to them. They believed their leaders, Caesar Augustus and others, were gods. Even their names spoke of their deity. And everything was idolatry to the nation of Israel. And they hated their captivity. And we begin to focus in on this. We begin to see great truths that's coming through this scene. There's light coming in a very difficult, dark place. And as we focus in just on the first six verses, and we'll look at seventh and following on Christmas morning, this scene starts to unfold before us in these opening verses. My mind quickly began to think of the prophet Isaiah. He was one that spoke in a very dark time. Not too many Sundays ago I spoke on Isaiah chapter 7 that there would be a child born of a virgin. That was a dark time in the nation of Israel. The northern tribe is completely gone. They've, they've worshipped pagan gods. They've bought into Baal and burning babies, and God sends Assyria, uh, Assyria to come and take them, and then the Assyrians eventually wipe them out. By the time you get to chapter 9, Assyria has taken the northern tribes away And Isaiah is prophesying that you're going to fall to Judah and Benjamin, the southern tribes. But he gives hope like a good prophet. 
And he says this in chapter 9, but there will be no more gloom for her for who was in anguish. In earlier times, he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt. These are the hardest hit uh, tribes when you come to the, to the uh, captivity of the northern tribes. And, and, and again, this is where Jesus is going to land. This is where his ministry is going to be. But later on, he shall make it glorious by the way of the sea to the other side of Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. And listen to this. And the people who walk in darkness will see a great light. For those who live in a dark land, the light will shine around them. But it was very dark when the Lord showed up. It's very dark. If you look at just chapter 2, verse 1, you begin to see the historical setting here. There's a world historical setting here. It says, Now in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. Well, I think it's important to try to figure out what is those days in those days. Chapter 1, verse 5, reads this way. In the days of Herod, king of Judah... There was a priest named Zechariah, and we get into the story of John the Baptist's father and so forth here. So when we look at this, we begin to realize there's a day happening that is not good. There are senses being taken. Remember, Israel knew that God judged the nation several times, particularly King David, and and the judgment fell on them for counting them. And census being taken by your captor really shows that you're out of control. This is a very dark time. Now, when we get into this census, there's really no records of Caesar Augustus issuing such a wide census till we get a little later. It's not till about 7 to 10 BC that we start to see recordings that we have now. But the Bible, but the Bible though it doesn't tell us, historians, historians have found that every 14 years they did census. And so as we do some of the math, we find Jesus probably being born somewhere between 4 B.C. and 6 or 7 A.D., somewhere in there. That's, that's as close as we can get. But the point is here is there's a census being taken. And Luke recounts that this census that Many believe that Herod and Quinarius, this governor here of Syria, are behind this. Rome, when Rome would do a census, they often did not, and history shows us this, they did not send their people back to a birthplace of their family. They would count them where they were so they knew where they were at. So most likely what we see in this is two very strong, power-driven rulers who are using maybe patriotism and tribal patriotism to bring people back home so they can count them to know what? So how much money they have, right? Always comes back to the dollar. And so here we have two men that are listed in this, in this text, one in chapter 1, Herod, and then another one, Quinarius, the governor of Syria. Now, Rome's registration would have counted these uh, residents so they knew a tax. But here, wicked Herod wanted more, right? And this brings us back to the very dark times that we find in King Herod. Herod was an awful man. He was an awful man. He was an Edomite. Edomites and Israelites hated each other. It comes down to Esau, I have hated. Jacob, I have loved. Esau Uh, Edomites attacked Israel many times and put them in very vulnerable spots during their wandering. There was a great hatred, and Herod was an Edomite. 
It's known about Herod of his wicked plots. There was a time where he was suspicious of some of his family members, so he called them to a great banquet, had a great hall, threw a great feast for them. In the middle of the feast, sent soldiers in and killed them all. His own sons were in that group. He was a wicked man. It was a dark time. He was extremely paranoid. All this was done because he wanted power. When the Magi show up from, uh, from probably Persia, uh, their probably descendants have heard about the coming King Jesus, the King of Israel through Daniel's prophecies. When they show up, Herod tricks them into telling them where the child would be, or at least trying to get that information. His goal was to slaughter Jesus. And Matthew chapter 2 tells us that he killed many, many babies trying to kill Jesus. And so here in this first verse, there is this decree that goes out from Caesar Augustus. This would have been Gaius Octavius, right? This would have been, um, would have been the great... Uh, let's see, his father would have been Caesar Augustus, right? He would have been Julius Caesar, um, his great uncle, excuse me. And he adopted him, and now he has this throne at this time. And when you study him, there's so much wickedness. It's time to go into this. Him and Mark Anthony go, go back, and they have a big war, and all kinds of problems, all kinds of immorality, all kinds of death within that kingdom. That's what's going on in this time. But when we look at this passage, and we look at what's going on, the Caesar Augustus and this census being taken, and then you have this Quinarius, and you have Herod. You have this all going on, this verse 3, this registration, each to his own city, probably by these two wicked men sending them back there. We begin to realize that God still has his hand on this. God's still in charge. He's taking Caesar and Herod and Quinarius, and he is controlling even the wicked hearts of them, and he's never responsible for their sin, but he takes them and he turns them, as Proverbs says, he turns them like the rivers with his hand to bring about the day of our Lord. And the Bible reminds us that God has control over those things. Galatians chapter 4 says, at the perfect time, at the right time, God sends forth his son. And so when we study this, even though it's dark, God is controlling Caesar, God is controlling Quinarius, God is controlling Herod. He's using all of this to get the couple to where? Bethlehem. Bethlehem. Where the prophet Micah had promised and, and prophesied would happen. Notice in verse 3 and 4, it says, Joseph also went up from Galilee. He had to go. He had to go where his people were. He had to go be registered. He went up from there to the city of Nazareth, to a Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of God. Let me tell you this, Caesar and Canarius and Herod had no idea that God had prophesied through Micah this verse. Listen to this, Micah chapter 5, verse 2. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come from one who is to be the ruler of Israel, who's coming forth, listen to this, is of old and from ancient days. He's eternal. And, and what I love about this, it's dark, it's difficult, right? There's this young couple, and, and you can just imagine what they've been through trying to explain to their family the pregnancy of Mary. They got to get to a place called Bethlehem, and she's about ready to have a baby. They got to go 90 to 100 miles 
four to five days of travel in late-term pregnancy to go register. God is controlling these men. He's bringing about a decree. I read quite extensively on this decree because some of these took three to four years to complete because the nations that were under Rome would stand in defiance. And eventually they would send enough army and enough guards and they would make them go to where they needed to be counted. And because Israel was a long ways from Rome, they could go for several years before this happened. And I thought about that as I was writing this. I said, Lord, you knew that was going on and you withheld that nation to go be counted and you probably sent soldiers to push them so that at that time, at the time God had decreed, Joseph and Mary would be in a town called Bethlehem and fulfill the promises of God. Bethlehem was where God told the world in Micah chapter 2 that he would be born. The religious leaders knew this, and though they hated Jesus and didn't want him to be king in any way, they, they were somewhat oblivious of the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. These who thought they knew the scriptures, and they said this in John chapter 7, about Jesus says, has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David, comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? This is what they said. Who is this guy? Who is this son of a carpenter? Who, he's a nobody. We, we know the Messiah is supposed to come from Bethlehem. And Jesus is going, yeah, I did. <laughs> I was born there. But you weren't there because you were not following the promises of God. And so as we see Joseph, he's in this line of David, such an important thing. Everything is lining up, right? God is a God of eternity. And in that eternity, he controls space and time and all of that. He has set in order when this Messiah is going to come at a perfect time, born of the law, born of a woman, so that he might make us adopted children. And all these things have to line up for him to be born on that day. It's an amazing thing. And if you don't think your salvation is calculated by God, the incarnation of Christ should teach you that. God calculated it perfect. And he used a million different circumstances to get that couple there. Notice in verse 5, this verse is quite personal. They're sent there in order to be registered. Along with him was Mary, who was engaged or betrothed to him and was with child. This is an interesting phrase here. Somewhere along the line, before they get there, there doubtlessly was a small ceremony. She, when she learned of her uh, pregnancy through the Holy Spirit that blocked her sin nature so the child would be placed in her womb by, Mary, by the Holy Spirit and not touch the sinless, sinfulness of Mary, she ran to Elizabeth, her older relative. She stayed there up to the birth, which would have been six months ahead of the Lord Jesus. So she stays maybe three months with her. And there's a lot of reasons, mostly who was going to believe this couple. Well, most uh, theologians believe that there must have been some small ceremony. But, you, but a lot of people stumble over this verse. It says, who was engaged or betrothed with him. Here's what I think happened. I think that term is used here in Luke, who's writing this, is reminding us that, that Joseph was very careful of how he handled his wife, though doubtlessly they had a ceremony because they had to go get registered together as a married couple. They go to Bethlehem. Joseph chose not to take his right and privileges as a husband with his wife, and he kept her in that betrothal state to prove that he had nothing to do with the birth of this child. 
Joseph was a righteous man, the Bible tells us. And so Mary, Mary stayed with Elizabeth, and then eventually probably some family, small, maybe, maybe very small family ceremony, and then they make their way to Bethlehem. Verse 6 is a beautiful verse. It says, while they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth. What was that like? It's 90 miles, give or take a few miles. They would have come from Galilee, so they would have went downhill. If you know that country, they would have went downhill for a little bit, for about 20 miles, slightly downhill, and then they would have started the long, long grade to Jerusalem. 2,500 feet over about 70 miles. And then they would have walked through Jerusalem to go through that, down the backside, and eventually out of town through Bethany and then on to Bethlehem where they had been. The timing of this is impeccable. She's going to get into Bethlehem. We don't know how long she's there, but she's not there long, and she has a baby. I find this absolutely amazing what God did with this couple. The days were completed. Now, now you could say, well, she was due. Her due date was there. The Lord had his hand in this. That child would not um, die in childbirth. There, There would not be a uh, a death uh, or a miscarriage or anything. This child was due in, in Bethlehem. And God brings us to this completion. Her time to give birth was there. And Joseph and Mary had completely laid their lives down in the hands of God. You remember Joseph wrestling with the, the truth of his pregnant wife during their betrothal period, how difficult that was. We looked at that not too many Sundays ago. And there, Joseph, as he wrestled what to do to either divorce her, stone her, whatever had to take place, he needed to do it quickly. He was wrestling with that, and he drifts off to sleep, and there the angel comes to him in a dream. But the Bible says that Joseph awoke from that and took Mary as his wife. And so somewhere along that, as she returns from Elizabeth, there's some kind of ceremony, and they give their lives to the Lord Jesus Christ, um, and who is in the womb of Mary. They lay down their lives for God's purposes, and they walk with him. Now, I think there's a great, remarkable challenge there, isn't there? Some of you have to walk with the Lord Jesus in very difficult circumstances. And I think this passage really encourages, doesn't it? Here's a couple that nobody understands, right? That message, can you imagine that night when Mary comes home and says, I'm pregnant, but don't pick up the stones yet. I got to tell you how. I'm pregnant by the Holy Spirit. What a, what a difficult, challenging time that was. And so we find the couple there. There's nothing in the text that tells us that there was anyone else there. We find them following the hand of God, committed to what God had given them and fulfilling it and coming to that perfect time. And I think, Christians, it's a good time to ask ourselves, Lord, what do you have for me? I've said this many times. I don't think God saved you just to hold down dirt on this earth. He has a plan and purpose for every one of us. And this couple had a unique purpose, and it cost them dearly, right? Probably cost them relationships, lifetimes of relationship. They're even mocked at Jesus' adulthood, that he was born in fornication, using very graphic terms by religious leaders. They never forgot that, and they constantly challenged Mary on those things. And so here, they had to lay down their plans in order to follow the Lord. 
See, one of the things that materialism does in our life is it ruins us sometimes from following the plan of God. We, we have so said of what we want, where we want to live, where we want to do, how we want to do it, who this we want to be with, and all of those things. So often we get away from what God really has for us. I've talked to too many men through the years who said, Pastor, I believe God called me in the ministry, but I was so hungry for money. I was so hungry for prosperity and jobs and a wife and all those things. I think I missed my calling. What is it in your life that you've got to lay down in order to follow Jesus? See, we, we teach the lordship of Jesus Christ, don't we, here? We believe he is lord and master. We're, we're his bondservants. And that's what Mary says, right? In her prayer, she says, I'm the bondservant, the bondslave of God. And when I study this, in this dark time, there's rulers who don't care about Israel. They don't care about the seed of David. They don't care about Bethlehem. They don't care about prophecies. They think they're the savior of the world. They don't care about these things. But here's this couple that know what God has done. They have heard from his word. And they press on in very difficult situations. See, I, I, when, I, when I think about Christmas, my mind just becomes captured by the power of the gospel. How do we keep going? Things are rough out there, right? we got all these rulers. The Herods and Quinariuses are still here, aren't they? Right? They're, they're still out there demanding all kinds of things. They, they want to know who they have, and they want money, and they want power, and they want all those things, but God is even using them to bring about his will. And brothers and sisters, too many Christians are so caught up in politics and problems that are going on, and we forget to run the race that God has for us. And when I look at this couple, this very dark night, they're, they're captives, right? Israel belongs to Rome, and many of them died in that captivity. They belong to Rome, but in the middle of all of that, they are following the hand of God. And God is empowering them and strengthening them. And brothers and sisters, it does not change with us. Some verses I came across in my study, Psalm 63, 8. And maybe this is what Joseph and Mary said when nobody believed them. They said, my soul clings to you. Does your soul cling to the Lord? Is he everything to you or are you just a religious person and you try to check boxes? See, there's such a difference. And when we study this couple, they cling to the Lord. He was their only hope. Jesus was the light of the world, wasn't he? And here in this very dark time comes the light of the world. There's a lot of darkness in our world, isn't there? There's a lot of difficulties. But we have hope. And we love about Christmas is because when we get through all the materialism and all the all, all the blending of a pagan holidays and, and the incarnation of Christ that somehow got blended together and we, and we try to keep our family focused in some way, but those presents and those trees are so fun and all those things. As we, as we clear out all of that, <laughs> there's the creator of the world arriving on the perfect time to live a perfect life, to die a perfect death for us. That's Christmas. And the Bible says that he came to his own and his own rejected him. But he gave the right. Now think about this. This is such a great Christmas message. He gave the right to those who believe to be the children of God. Did you catch that main verb? He gave. 
That's a gift. He gave the right. As I pondered that this week, thinking through this message, I thought, Lord, thank you for giving me the greatest gift I could ever have. You gave me the right to be called your son. And you did it not through my works, not through my righteousness, not through through my heritage or my bloodlines. You did it through your son's perfect finished work. That's, that's the greatest gift. Do you have that? Do you have that? Do you have that great gift? Has it transformed your life? Has it gripped you and caused you to think about what Christ would want you to do in your life? Or is it just another story that'll disappear by January 1st? See, for the Christian, for the born-again believer who loves the Lord Jesus Christ, this is motivation for worship. So here we look at this passage and we go, oh Lord, it was dark. There's bad men ruling. There's slavery. There's abuse. There's all kinds of things happening, but God has bringing all of this to a focal point. Jesus comes, born of a woman, born under the law, born to make us sons, as the great song says. Well, I trust that you will have a great weekend. I trust you will come back on Sunday. And I want to just give you one little reminder. Sunday is what is the Lord's Day, isn't it? It's always been the Lord's Day. It happens to fall on Christmas today. Come back and you'll hear the rest of the story. We're going to start in verse 7. Look at his birth. Look at the shepherds that come. See the worship that takes place. We're going to drop right into that scene. Father, we thank you for an evening tonight where we could just remind ourselves of the night before the birth. And maybe a lot of nights before the birth, Lord, these were dark times. These were wicked times. Men seemed to have just a carte blanche of how they cared for people. They could order them to do this. They could order them to do that. Life of a slave was meaningless. And yet in all of that, all of these wicked men that had kingdoms and providences and oversaw a large amount of people, you had control of all those things. You put that census in their heart. You put that in their minds. They think they came up with that, but you were motivating. You knew how to get that couple to Bethlehem. You knew how you were going to fulfill that great promise, that great prophecy of Micah 5, 2. And so, Lord, we see your hand orchestrated in all these things. And we thank you that you sent your son. It is he who motivates us in this Christmas season. And when we look at that manger, we see creator, savior, and God. And we thank you that you sent him to rescue us. Thank you that we are no longer slaves to sin for all those who believe in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. Thank you that we can live for you and we can even die for you now because you have changed us from death to life, from blind to seen, from, from lost to found. We give you praise for those things, Lord. Father, as we sing this last song to you, Lord, the quietness of it, the truth of it, Lord. Capture our hearts. Give us sweet fellowship. Bring us back again on Sunday, Lord, for a great day, a Lord's day that happens to fall on Christmas. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.